0: I am going to get back on John 8, but in light of communion, I just was impressed to teach on healing today. So we're going to have a message entitled Healing the Children's Bread. And before we get into the actual text we're going to use, I've heard this from more than one person lately, you know, like why all these trials? Someone said, and it's true. It just seems like there's a lot of people in our church right now that are under attack. And the question is, why? I'm sure many of you have had that question pass through your mind, and I think there's several reasons, and I think there's some we don't know, because we're not God, and He has purposes and plans a lot of times don't become evident until later down the road. But one thing I think seems to be pretty clear is that God is bringing us, and I think it's happening more than just here, I think it's happening all across the world, to a valley of decision, a crossroads, so to speak. And I just think that's what he seems to be saying at this hour. So the question is, whom will you serve? And what do you really believe about God? What do you really believe about the Lord Jesus Christ? If you would turn to 1 Peter 4, I think this is part of what's happening. Why are trials happening? 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12, Peter writes, Beloved... Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Sila, a busybody in other men's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Really, that whole section is one section there. Sometimes they'll dissect it apart. Judgment must begin at the house of God. But really, you've got to go back to verse 12 and read on through. That is one section there. And Peter starts that off. And he begins by talking about fiery trials. Now, fire has two purposes. It can be a blessing. For instance, it provides light, provides heat, and it purifies gold. So it can be a blessing, but it also can destroy, can it? It destroys homes, race car drivers, forests, or in war, Drop a napalm, you know, a napalm, liquid fire on people and just burn them to death, incinerate them. So it can destroy. That's what fire can do. But Peter says here at the beginning, look in verse 12, beloved, do not think it strange. And he's saying, don't be astonished. Don't be surprised, is what that word strange means. It's a Greek word for surprised or think it strange. It's to be surprised when an unexpected guest shows up at your door. Oh, I wasn't expecting you. Look at my house, you know, and all that. Wasn't ready for you yet, but that's what that word's talk about. And so he's saying, don't be surprised when you're in the middle of a fiery trial as though some unexpected thing has happened to you. That's what he's saying there, as though this trial is an unexpected guest. He said, but instead, what are we supposed to do? I love this, don't we? Rejoice. And James tells us why. James tells us why we should rejoice because he says, God is doing a work in you. Isn't he bringing us to maturity? So let the fire do its work. I'm standing here and I understand it's easier said than done, isn't it? (laughs) Nobody likes standing in fire. It's hard. You got all kinds of issues you're dealing with then, aren't you? That are easy to deal with when you're not. And it's easy to look at somebody standing in a fire and tell them what they ought to do. right? And they're telling you, I wish you'd put it out. (laughs) It's easier said than done. But one thing is certain. What do fiery trials do? Well, like I said, they hurt. They purify. But another thing they do is they sift, don't they? They sift. Verse seventeen is telling us that the sifting has begun. For the time has come for judgment to begin. Where, at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, and I'm saying it's begun and it will intensify. I think there are days ahead, and especially for those of you that are younger, but I think for all of us, I mean, I'll consider myself that old. I'm not planning on going anywhere the next twenty years, Lord willing, but. It's going to make these days, we're going to look back and think, boy, this was a tough time. We're going to look back and think, that was really nothing. Hebrew class, my teacher, Dr. Betts, for me, it was rough, along with everything else I was doing. He told the class, he said, I'm going to tell you all, as bad and as hard as you think this class is right now, with these tests coming up and all the study and the vocab and all that stuff, ask Caleb about how Hebrew is. He says he likes it. There's something wrong with Caleb, So I can tell you. But he said this, he said, as hard as you think this is, he says, when you get in ministry, you'll look back and long for these days. And I do. He was right. For as bad as you think things may seem now, you'll look back and think this was nothing. I understand people are going through some serious things. I'm not making light of that. But God told Jeremiah this. He says, if you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted, they wearied you, then how will you do in the flooding of the Jordan? So Peter says, think it not strange. Don't look at it like it's some kind of unexpected guess because God in his grace is getting us prepared. So my wife didn't know I was gonna talk about this this morning and she's like, I've got to share something with you I read out of Matthew Henry. And I'm like, well, what is that? She goes, well, I was reading 1 Peter 4. And he says, she was telling me, Matthew, Henry says that before God ever judges a nation, he always begins with the church. And you want to look at it this way, it could be judgment for some. It could be just chastisement. And he said, I thought this was good, so i just throw it in my notes real quick. But he said the reason is, is he's preparing his church. He's getting them to tighten up before it falls everywhere else so we can handle it. And that's what I think's happening. But here's the thing we're going to see here, too, is... Surviving in this times, the times that are ahead, even if the Lord tarries for another hundred years, it's still. It's not like we're exempt from trials in this life. But it is going to take total commitment. Lukewarm commitment is not going to make it. It won't last. And look what it says here at the end. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God do what? Commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator and that's what he's saying gonna to take total commitment and that's what the three hebrew boys did didn't they you think about the three hebrew boys they committed their souls and their very lives into the hands of god peter here is talking about fiery trials and they faced a literal fiery trial and they didn't flinch did they because they'd already committed themselves to the lord before that trial ever came and here's what they said, O oh God, when Nebuchadnezzar threatens them that we're going to throw you in that fiery furnace. They said, oh, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O oh king. But if not, let it be known to you, O oh king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. And that is how faith works forsaking all, I trust him. That's still the way faith works. You have to burn your bridges. They burnt their bridges, didn't they? Do whatever you want to to us. We're not going back. We're not bowing our knee to you. It's got to be I've committed my life into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Committed my life to him in all respects, the faithful God. Let's read that again, verse 19 there. 1 Peter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God do what? Commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. I think we can trust Him. In looking at the Exodus, what we need to understand is they went into the wilderness before they received the blessings. God brought Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness, and it's a beautiful picture of our salvation coming out of Egypt, were released from slavery and bondage. They were to Pharaoh, and he's a type of sin and Satan. And we're redeemed from that bondage to serve the Lord in freedom and to be brought into Canaan's land, which also is a type of the kingdom of God, which is the fullness of Christ, a land flowing with milk and honey. They were going to get brought into huge grapes and ready to move in houses. Man, That's the type of what God has blessed us with. It says in Ephesians 1 that he has blessed us not with material things so much as all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. That's what really should be counting in our lives now. We shouldn't be to where all we come here to hear faith messages, to hear how we can get all these things. (laughs) I mean, he says, if you seek first the kingdom, he'll provide for us. The spiritual blessings that we should be happy about and blessed about and excited about is his word that he's given us, the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, his presence, his peace, his joy, knowing he's walking with us all the time. Plus, he does give the promise to meet all of our needs, doesn't he? No matter what they are, fear not, little flock, Luke 12, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom and i mean i praise god for that promise that's a great little promise to memorize fear not little flock it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom but before canaan before all that came what did they have to go through the wilderness and what was the wilderness what was the wilderness it was a testing ground a proving ground and a proving ground if you want to get Merriam's dictionary is defined as any place context or area for testing something a proving ground now we had a proving ground up until 1995 just north of us here in madison indiana that's called the jefferson proving ground and the u.s army would test military ordnance or rounds mainly they were weapons that were designed as soon as they hit the ground to explode or in, explode on impact and it, 23 million rounds were fired from 1941 until they closed it down in 1995 and they said approximately of all the 23 million 6% of those rounds failed to explode 6% and they became known as duds duds The army wanted to know who were the duds and why there were duds before the real battle began and let me ask you are there spiritual duds I've been one at times We've all been spiritual duds. And God told Israel, listen, I'm taking you out to the proving ground, to the wilderness, your proving ground. So if you would, please turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look what it says. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord." Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. And you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. And you understand chastening is always not necessarily because of sin. It's just an instruction, a learning process, which is what's going on a lot out in the wilderness. So he brought him out in the wilderness to prove him. He said to test them, to humble them, and he's doing the same to us right now. The same thing. And we have to remember who it is that has led us to our proving ground. So look back in verse 2. Look what it says. And you shall remember. He's saying, don't forget that the Lord your God led you all these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you and to know what was in your heart Who's the one that led him there? The Lord did. They didn't see it that way all the time, did they? Or they didn't like it, the way he was doing it. And Jesus was led into the wilderness. Who led him there? Matthew 4 says Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Whatever wilderness you're in right now, whatever testing, whatever humbling, whatever proving you're going through, understand that God has led you there but here's the question has he led us into our wilderness experience whatever it may be to destroy us now it may seem that way at times doesn't it look in verse 11 of chapter 8 of deuteronomy and he says this beware that you do not forget the lord your god by not keeping his commandments his judgments and his statutes which i command you today lest when you have eaten and are full And have built beautiful houses and dwell in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. When your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions, And thirsty land where there was no water who brought water for you out of the flinty rock who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you but also what to do you good in the end then you say in your heart my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth what's it saying there He hasn't come to destroy us. He's just come to test us, to prove what was in our heart. The Lord is saying this to us. He's saying, you all say you believe my word. You say you've given me your life. And he's saying, so now I'm going to test that. Not to destroy you, but so whether you can know your faith that you confess that you have is genuine. And if you find it's not that you're a dud, now's the time to make adjustments isn't it judgment it? must begin at the house of god first begins with us god is saying in his grace i'm just showing you what's in your heart so you can tighten up if it's not the way you want it to be there's still time and i think that's what he's saying now is the time to make adjustments if you need to all of us all of us have some adjustments to make don't we and if you would look in the last book of the old testament malachi malachi I've already broken my record for a number of scriptures to turn to here lately. But if you look at Malachi chapter three, right before Matthew, not hard to find. Malachi chapter three. And it talks about two groups of people here and I'm saying now is the time to make adjustments. Malachi 3.13, the Lord says to this to the people, your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord, and yet you say, well, what have we spoken against you? And he said, well, you've said it's useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinances and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed, and those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. That's the first group. And then here's the second group. Then those who feared the Lord, verse 16, spoke to one another. And the Lord listened and heard them, And so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord, who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I make my jewels, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. And then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. You got two groups of people there. You got people that are complaining that serving God is useless, worthless. And God says, those are harsh words you've spoken against me. And the second group are those that fear the Lord. And not only that, they fear him and they talk about his faithfulness. And God says to that group, I'm bending my ear. I'm down there. I'm listening to what they're saying and they shall be mine is what he says. He goes on to tell us there's going to come a fire. We're saying fire separates, it purges. And that's what he says beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. A fire's coming to purge. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, a fire. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But... Here's that second group to you who fear my name. The son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings and you'll go out and grow fat like stall fed calves and you shall trample the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this says the Lord of hosts. There's going to be a distinction and fire is going to be the separator, isn't it? He's going to burn the wicked up like stubble, he says, in the day that's coming. But he says, those that fear my name, they're not going to burn up like stubble. He's going to ride with healing in his wings for them, isn't he? That's what the promise is. That's a great promise. Those who fear the Lord are promised healing. And that's what we're going to talk about today, healing. So if you would, where is the first promise of healing given? We've been talking about the Exodus. So if you would turn back there to Exodus 15. Let's look at Exodus 15. So Israel, when they... Crossed the Red Sea, entered the wilderness, they almost immediately were brought to their first test. And we see that if you look in Exodus 15, look in the verses 22 to 23. It says, Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. For three days, they're out there, and they find no water. And then when they finally do find water, it's bitter, and they can't drink it. The people cry out. They're upset. They cry out for thirst, and they complain. They don't complain to God. Who do they complain to? Look what it says. And the people complained, verse 24, against whom? Moses saying, what are we going to drink? Complain against Moses. Calvin said this, he says, God could have made that water sweet before they ever got there. He could have, couldn't he? Could have done that. But he wished by leaving the water bitter to make prominent the bitterness that was in their hearts. So what we need to see is the sin was not in being thirsty and wanting relief. Because three days, you know, that's how long you basically could go without water. You can go 21 days or a little longer without food. But three days without water, you better get you something to drink or you're fixing to be in a big trial. They're going three days. That's no small thing. They've got little kids for themselves. They're little kids. They've got livestock that need water. The problem's not that they're thirsty and they want relief. That's not the problem, is it? The problem is they're relying on Moses and they're blaming him instead of looking to God and talking to him. The problem's not that we're in a trial and you're saying, I'd like to have some relief. But the problem is, is when you start complaining and complaining to the wrong people and not taking your case to the Lord. We can take our case to the Lord, can't we? The Psalms, that's happening all through the Psalms. Look what it says here in verses 24 to 26. And the people complained against Moses, what shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, if you do that, God says, Then I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Verse 25, what does it tell us there? It tells us that at the waters of Marah, God tested Israel. He wanted to show them what? What was the test? He wanted to show them how they would respond to difficulty. He already knew how they would respond, didn't he? The lesson he's trying to drive home is this to these people. You can trust me. You're under my care. I won't bring you into ruin like the Egyptians. You just need to trust and obey. That's what he's telling them. He really doesn't get on them here for their sin does he that comes later but at this point he just deals with them in a nice way and says look i'm just revealing it to you by making this bitter water sweet i'm showing you you can trust me i'm the one that brought you here i'll get you on through i'm not going to do to you all what i did to the egyptians unless you will not obey me because then we're in the deuteronomy 28 aren't we Deuteronomy 28 says, if you'll do what the Lord says, obey him, give he, all these blessings will come on you and overtake you. But if you won't, then he's listing all the things at the end of the rest of Deuteronomy 28 that were the curses that came on the Egyptians. Read it on your own. Uh, That's what he's saying here. He's telling them, he's basically revealing to them what, what's the revelation he's given them at this point. That he is their all sufficient provider. He's saying whatever bitter situation you find yourself, God says, I will make it right. Isn't that what he's telling him? Do you believe that? Do you believe, I heard a guy say, that God can fix anything? Amen. Do we really believe that, that he can fix anything? And listen, any bitter circumstance, I'm saying, what's a more bitter circumstance than when you're suffering sickness and you're in pain? It's like they say, you'd give anything to have your health. You hear older people say, oh, I'd give anything to have my health back. I can't do anything now. I'm stuck in this house. Can't get out. And God told Israel, I am the Lord who heals you. And not just, I am your healer, I am your healer, but I am. The great I am is what he's saying. Yahweh, the eternal, unchanging, all-powerful God. That is the I am the Lord that heals you, the great physician. And he's telling them, and they had no other. You need no other. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, your healer. And he was. He wasn't only Israel in the desert's healer, theirs, but this is God's covenant revelation to his people for all time. Because what is Yahweh? What does it mean? I am that I am, never changing. The living God. I am always this, he's telling them and us. I am Yahweh, your healer. That's his word to his people, the healer of his people forever. And this covenant God that we see right here clearly came to earth and revealed himself as whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus many times in the Gospel of John declared that he was the great I am of the Old Testament. They were going to stone him for that. He says, I am, ego me. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. And he said before Abraham was, ego me, I am. Oh, they're going to get him on that one. Who do you think you are? He's Yahweh Rophakah of the Old Testament. By his miracles of healing and deliverance in the gospel, he proved who he is, that he is, I am the Lord who heals you of Exodus. And he continued to heal, didn't he? Through his disciples in the book of Acts. And when they prayed, they said, you stretch forth your hand and by thy holy child, Jesus, bring healing and miracles and confirm your word. Isn't that what they prayed? In Acts. Jesus didn't come down. It's the Holy Spirit in them. It's the Spirit of Christ in them that is still continuing that ministry through the book of Acts. And it goes on past that. The promise is He will never stop healing. Because Mark 16, we taught on this, these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name. The end of that says, they shall in my name lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. When you're doing things in the name of the Lord, it's him working through you. And that's exactly what we find at the end of Mark 16 when it says this. They went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. The Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. He's never stopped. Yahweh means I am that I am the Lord that heals it's never stopped when it says here that he made a statute and an ordinance at the end of verse 25 for them and there he tested them when it says he made a statute and an ordinance that means he made a covenant with his people Joshua 24 uses the same language. It says the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God will serve him and his voice. We will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance. The same language is used. That's what he means by a statute and an ordinance. He's making a covenant with them. That means when there's a covenant, what happens? There's obligations on both sides, aren't there? If Israel would meet their obligations, obey my voice, give ear to my commandments, keep my statutes, then God obligates himself to meet his word, to fulfill his word. He says, I will put none, N-O-N-E, of the diseases on you because I am the Lord your healer. That's what he says. And that's what he said to him. Did it work? Did it work? As long as Israel kept their end of the bargain god was faithful and god's faithful whether they kept their end of the bargain or not as far as they're concerned though they kept their end of the bargain he was faithful psalm 105 37 tells us this he also brought them out with silver and gold and it says there was n-o-n-e none feeble among them none feeble among his tribes And here's what the point of today's message is. We have got to have our eyes and our hearts open to see that God's promise of healing, and I'm talking about supernatural, divine healing, is to A-double-L. All. No exceptions. I'm talking about God's people. I'm not talking about the sinners. I'm saying to God's people, there are no exceptions. There were 3 million Jews, approximately, that came out of Egypt. 3 million. And of those three millions, that means babies, that means teenagers, that means young adults, that means parents, and that means elderly. And it says, yet there was not one feeble among them. Not one feeble person. Somebody's having trouble getting around. These people got to be marching out in the desert. And God supernaturally took care of them, didn't he? He brought them out. As long as they were obedient, they had no troubles. When did they get in trouble? They start complaining. They didn't like things. And so what did the Lord do? Sent in fiery serpents, didn't he? And all of a sudden it says many died because of that. Many died. You could say, well, he wasn't healing them then. Well, they weren't keeping their end of the bargain, were they? But when they repented... And they confessed their sin and came to Moses. God said, put this serpent on the pole. And it said, when he did that, we're talking about healing is for all. It said, everyone that looked. No exceptions. Everyone that would look, which represented Jesus bearing our curse. Everyone that looked was healed. Everyone. And that's what we have to see. It's everyone. Spurgeon said this about They came out with no feeble ones among them. I thought this was good. He said the number of their army was very great. And yet there was not one in hospital, not one carried in an ambulance or limping in the rear. Poverty and oppression had not enfeebled them. Yahweh Rapha had healed them. They carried none of the diseases of Egypt with them and felt none of the exhaustion which sore bondage produces. When God calls his people to a long journey, he fits them for it and the pilgrimage of life our strength shall be equal to our day and brother murphy says amen god's been doing that for you hadn't he amen see the contrast he says between egypt and israel in egypt one dead in every house one dead in every house and among the israelites not one so much as limping praise the lord (laughs) what i'm saying is crucial to faith We have to know that it's God's will to heal all. Israel was his people, right? And he didn't make the promise just to Moses. He didn't make it to one tribe. It said all of the tribes, there was not found one feeble person. Every single person of God's people. If you doubt or you're uncertain that God will heal you, you're not sure if it's your inheritance. Your faith is going to lose its power. And doubt and fear are going to crowd out your trust, and that's what's going to happen. Because if God's only going to heal some and only the lucky few, and not heal all, then guess what? Nobody could have faith for healing. Nobody could. It'd be presumption. Well, what I want to talk about next is moving on. Is that healing is the children's bread? It's saying the same thing in another way, and that's the title of the message: Healing is the children's bread a syrophoenician woman she begs the lord to cast that demon out of her daughter doesn't she and what was the lord's reply to her he said let the children first be filled for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs who are the children the nation of israel all of them wasn't it they are the children all of israel god's people we have been grafted into their vine it says this we've been grafted into their vine for you are all the children of god by faith in christ jesus paul wrote that in galatians we are children of god now we're grafted into their vine, so we're included in all of this healing that takes place the children's bread is ours and that's the bread isn't it deliverance and healing here is the point i'm trying to make maybe not well But when you become a child of God, you no longer have to beg for healing or deliverance. It's ours by inheritance because we're God's children. Jesus said this, Sermon on the Mount, ask and it shall be given you. What man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? And he says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give Good things to those who ask him. Good things, he says. The bread. Because what does it say? God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. That was what he carried with him. Holy Spirit and power who went about doing what? Went about doing what? Good. And that is how he displayed the goodness of God. Went about doing good. Healing. All who were oppressed by the devil. That's where sickness comes from. That's not the message today, but that is where sickness comes from, the devil. In light of that, do we have to fear? Do we have to fear that if we're meeting the conditions that God will withhold our bread, our healing? Will he withhold good things from us? He just said he wouldn't, didn't he? Let's believe that. Let's dare to believe that our Heavenly Father loves us at least as much as our earthly parents. Even though Jesus said, how much more your Heavenly Father? He's saying He definitely loves us more. Let's just stick with the love our parents had for us, though. Just get to that level. And let's believe at least that He has as much compassion for us as they would or do. Let's believe that. Let's believe that no good thing, what does it say? No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. Isn't that what he promises us? I've been reading these healing books, and you get in healing books, and it's guys that are going to encourage you and talking about trusting the Lord, and they're giving you verses, and and all of a sudden your faith is just built up versus hearing all the other negativity and all the other what God won't do and is not doing. I want to hear what the Lord is doing based on the Word of God. I've got healing books back there. Some good ones. Christ the healer, Andrew Murray. You're struggling with healing. You're not sure about that. Get in them. Like I said, now's the time to make adjustments. If he's provided it on the cross, why not partake of it? Supernaturally. That's the way it is. Does he have compassion on the sick? Especially his children. Turn to Matthew 14. Matthew 14, 14. Does he have compassion? And this is still under the thing that God heals all. Matthew 14, 14, it says, we'll start in verse 13. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. And he was moved with what? Compassion for them. And he did what? He healed They're sick. He's seeing this great crowd of people and there had to be all kinds of sicknesses and illnesses and people missing limbs is what we know. And it says he doesn't look on that and act like I don't care. It says he sees the multitude and has compassion. He's moved with compassion. And did what? Just went on and got back in a boat and said, I'm sorry folks. No, it says he healed them. That's what he came to do. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth who went about doing good, doing the Father's will. Healing. He sees they're oppressed by the devil. He's not happy about that. That's his creation, isn't it? Jesus is the creator. He's seeing his creation marred and mangled and suffering and oppressed. He wasn't happy about that at all. And so he did something about it, didn't he? God in his mercy. Turn just a few chapters over to Matthew 20. And look in verse 29 about the two blind men. It says now as they went out of Jericho a great multitude followed him and behold two blind men sitting by the road when they heard that Jesus was passing by cried out saying have mercy on us o lord son of david and the multitude warned them that they should be quiet but they cried out all the more saying have mercy on us o lord son of david so jesus stood still and called them and said what do you want me to do for you and they said to him lord that our eyes may be opened And what does it say? So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. I was preaching in prison here recently and I was preaching about how Jesus said we must be willing to pluck out our eyes if that's what's going to hinder us from going into the kingdom. And I told them that Jesus is talking about things that are precious to us and priceless like our eyes. And I said, Nothing is more precious than sight. I said, You'd give anything for sight. Well, there's a brother that comes and sits on the front row that's blind. Now, he's not one of these pity me guys at all. He's got this big smile on his face, and he says, Amen to that. I'd give anything. That's what he said with this big smile. I'm telling you, my heart went out to him. Be praying God opens his eyes spiritually so that they can be opened physically, because he is a good brother. How could you not see a blind person and not be moved with compassion? We have several blind people that come to our meetings. We have people missing limbs. We have different people. How could you not be moved with compassion when you see that? How much more your heavenly father? You're suffering here today. His heart is moved with compassion. Jesus came to show us the heart of the invisible God. Wasn't that what he came to do? We read repeatedly he was moved with compassion for lepers. We just read about the blind, the multitudes. He'll come to your aid and deliver you. In Exodus 3, Israel was oppressed by Pharaoh, at least said a type of Satan. And Jesus healed all who were oppressed by the devil And when we read Exodus 3, it says God looked down and saw what they were going through. And finally, there came a point. It went on for a while. There finally came a point, though, this bully is picking on his children that God just stepped in and he said, enough. Isn't that what happened? So he raises Moses up, appears to him in the burning bush, and he said this to Moses. He says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land to a land flowing with milk and honey. Sometimes it feels like you've been suffering a long time under the oppression of the enemy and God is doing nothing. Israel felt the same way but did god do nothing he stepped in what about the woman with the spirit of infirmity it says in luke 13 she was one of god's children just like israel was jesus called her a daughter of abraham yet it says that she was in the clutches of an evil spirit that's what it says it was a spirit of infirmity for 18 years bent over for 18 years You think of all the things she would have been going through bent over trying to get around for 18 years You don't think she ever cried out to the Lord in her distress. I guarantee you that she did And God heard her cry and one day he said just like he said with his children enough This is my daughter down there And here's this thing's got her in a spiritual vice that she can't stand up and be normal like everybody else And one day he said there's enough and there she is in the synagogue She's there to worship the Lord. She's listening to Jesus teach. That's what it says if you go back and read the account. And her day came. Because it says this, when Jesus saw her, how would you like to have Jesus single you out of a crowd when you needed healing? I'd be like, man, praise God. When Jesus saw her, it said he called her to him. Called her to him and said to her, woman. You are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hand on her, and she's like, it's about time. No, that's not what it says. And it says, immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Eighteen years of misery, oppression, embarrassment, and pain gone in a moment because her day had come, and she wasn't complaining that it took so long. (laughs) She left glorifying God. Healing and deliverance is the children's bread. And she got the whole loaf, didn't she? Because that's what she needed. She was a daughter of Abraham. And Jesus said at the end of that, ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham whom Satan has bound. Think of it, for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. He said, ought not. So remember we said this is a covenant God made? He said, if you will obey and heed and follow me then i have an obligation too and this woman was meeting her obligation she was a saved person a daughter of abraham she's in the synagogue she's serving the lord and so jesus is saying ought not i'm morally responsible to heal this woman she's meeting her side. i'm gonna meet mine and her day came ought not and we need to press that claim don't we that's where we got to see that it's the children's bread. It's our right. It's our inheritance. The devil has no right to oppress us, does he? No right to oppress us. And the ought not is equal to that big first word on that board over there. Surely, Amen. That's right. surely he has borne our pains and carried our diseases. Not maybe. It's a surely that's up there, right? Praise the Lord. I'm going to end with this. I read this testimony and I hope I can get through it without crying again. But this testimony brought tears to my eyes. Charles S. Price, I got his book back there. And this testimony is actually in one of his books. I think he died in 1947. God mightily used him. I've got a book back there on faith and healing. It's an excellent book. God mightily used him in dramatic healings that took place. He was a denominational minister that got light on divine healing but anyways he gives this testimony he was conducting an evangelistic healing campaign and miracles were happening he announced that on saturday the saturday coming up he was going to have a children's healing service and thousands were praying that god would manifest his power in this service on thursday afternoon two days before they were going to have that children's healing service this little girl came up on the platform to talk to him and he said she had this sweet little face blue eyes and all these little curls around her head just just a darling little girl and she wanted to talk to him about the healing service she was a cripple he said from her waist down to the soles of her feet she was strapped in these bars of iron bars of steel he called it Said the tips of her thickly soled shoes barely touched the ground as she hobbled along with crutches beneath her baby arms. Said the doctors had done everything they could to battle this scourge of infantile paralysis. But as far as they were concerned, she was beyond human help. And so she asked Dr. Price, she gets up there and she says, what are you going to pray for the children, Brother Price? On Saturday afternoon, he told her. And her face was like all happy. She says, I'll be so happy when I can run and play just like my little friends. And he said, yes, that'll be a great day for you, little darling. And I'm praying that the good Lord will give us all faith to reach out and touch him so that your dream might come true. Are you praying for yourself? And she said, yes, sir. And then he said, is your mother praying? And she hesitated for a moment. And says, she softly answered, yes, and then he said, is your father praying? And he said, there again was a noticeable hesitation. And she said, yes, my dad's praying too. I must go now, goodbye, and took off. Away way she hobbled, he said, as quickly as she could, down the steps, down the aisle, and out the door of the great auditorium. The following afternoon, he said, she came to the meeting a little late for she could only attend after school. And as she came to the platform, she burst into tears. Her little body just shook with her sobs as she said to me, Brother Price, I have come to tell you that I will not be here tomorrow. Jesus will not heal me. What's the trouble? He asked her. And she told me the story. She said that she had told a lie and that Jesus had heard her. She had said that her mother and father were both praying. They were not. As a matter of fact, she said they had forbidden her to attend the meetings. She said that her father swore at her and her mother had whipped her for being so foolish as to believe she could be healed by the power of the Lord. It was not a Christian home, far from it. But the poor little girl had attended the meeting and had heard and believed the story of the healing Christ. I put my arms around her and did my best to comfort her broken little heart. I told her Jesus loved her in spite of the fact that she had done wrong and explained to her as best I could the meaning of that word grace. She listened. I dried her weeping eyes with my handkerchief and asked her to kneel with me and pray. I cannot kneel, Mr. Price, because of the braces, but I can stand and pray. I told her to sit in my chair and I knelt down by her side and we prayed together. She left the platform that afternoon with the promise that she would return the following day and be anointed in the children's healing service and look to the Lord for deliverance. Never shall I forget that Saturday afternoon. She was the third little girl in line. And when I prayed, nothing happened. That is nothing that was manifest, nothing that we could see. I prayed the second time. And when I opened my eyes, she was still standing on her crutches. Turning to the audience, I said, everybody pray. Please pray. Let faith overcome curiosity. Lift your hearts to the Lord in prayer. The whole congregation burst into prayer. Many wept, and quite a few got on their knees before the Lord. I myself knelt on the platform and cried out my heart to God. And when I opened my eyes, the little girl was gone. She had climbed down the steps. She was still on her crutches. She was still as bad as ever to all outward appearances. I thought I would encourage her by telling her that all healings were not instant. As in the days of Jesus, some began to mend at the hour of prayer. But to my surprise, she rebuked me. She didn't intend to do so, but she did. Her little eyes flashed with the light of heaven. She threw back her little curls as she tossed her head and said, Oh, Brother Price, you don't have to talk to me like that. I believe Jesus. Mine is a very hard case. I don't expect him to heal me all of a sudden. Her little voice was vibrant with praise and faith. At the Saturday night service, she did not come. All day Sunday, I looked for my little girl, but she was not there. Monday afternoon, I felt sure that she would make her appearance, but the little girl was not to be found. Thoughts came into my mind of whippings at home, of a swearing father, of a mother who did not believe. Monday night, I looked over the great audience, and still my eyes failed to detect her. And when the time for the altar call came, I invited every man and woman who was unsaved to come and kneel before the Lord, plead the blood of Calvary, and give their hearts to Jesus. It was then I saw my little girl. I don't know if I can get through the rest of this or not. Down the long center aisle she came, leading by one hand a man, and by the other hand a woman, altar workers, rushed to help but i waved them aside right in front of my pulpit they came and i heard her little voice say daddy you kneel here and mother you kneel there i looked at her and then broke into sobs of praise the crutches were gone the braces were gone she walked without a limp she was healed that night while the angels in glory sang the praises of a redeemer that father and mother found christ as savior chorus after chorus rang through the building and for over one hour the people stayed to pray as i went home that night i could hear a little group of people standing by the auditorium door singing jesus breaks every fetter and he sets me free and he says this the healing had occurred just as they were sitting down to evening meal that little girl had bowed her head to pray and the glory of the Lord had rested upon her. And he ends by saying this, my friend, will you not learn this lesson? It is not because we are worthy, not because we deserve it, but because of the infinite love of God that such marvelous grace has been bestowed upon us. And I'm saying her day came. I'm sorry, but... I had trouble, I couldn't read that thing at home two times three without blubber. That's the message. The healing bread is ours, amen? And if we'll just trust him and have the faith of a little child, he'll manifest it to us. Amen. Well, let's pray. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and the truth of your word that you are the Lord, our healer, Lord. and. You may bring us into tight places and and places in the wilderness, Lord, but that's just so you can show your faithfulness to us and to show us what's in our heart. And I ask, Father, you'll help all of us here to make any adjustments we need that we can just look to you as that little girl and put our trust in you and know, Lord, that you will manifest your power to heal us and deliver us. And we thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord, and and the promise and the word that you've given us here. In Jesus' name, amen.